Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, so Galatians, we said last week we are in the weeds 100%. Chapter 3 and 4 is deep and thick theology, and so it can be hard to know what is this actual, how does this impact the way I live on Tuesday? And we said, A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. The most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. What we think about when we think about God determines how we relate to God, and how we relate to God determines how we live our entire lives. And so as we're going through Galatians 3 and 4, I would encourage you just every now and again, just take a step back. What do I think about when I think about God? And allow the truth of these chapters to begin to form and shape that understanding. And over time, that will impact the way you relate to him and then the way you live your life. So what Paul's doing here in Galatians, he's trying to call the Galatians, a church that he started, back to the gospel that he preached to them and that they first received, which is justification, being declared righteous by God and before God through faith, through trusting in Jesus. So we're made right with God through trusting in Jesus, not through trusting in Jesus and following the law, which is what people are trying. There's a a group of troublemakers who are trying to convince the Galatians that that is what is true. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at 2,000 years of history. Paul takes this really broad brush It's 2,000 years of salvation history. Here's how God's been working in his people. Going all the way back to Abraham. God committed to give Abraham certain things. Abraham, here's your inheritance. And that inheritance, which we can shorthand, the inheritance is you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. That's based on the promises of God. That's based on commitments that God has made to Abraham and to his descendants. 500 years later, he gives the law to Moses. The law does not then become the basis of the inheritance. We don't go from, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God based on my commitment to you, to you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God based on your performance for me. That doesn't change. What we saw last week was the law was given for a very specific reason. And it was given in order to make our sin explicit. That's what Paul says in Romans as well. It's through the law that we become aware of our sin. That word in Galatians 3 for sin is transgressions. It's the crossing of a line or the breaking of a boundary. And that's what the law does. It highlights. Here's the laws. Here's, here are the lines that you're crossing. Here are the boundaries that you're breaking. And that's intended to point us to Jesus, to our need for a Savior. You've broken the law. It's explicit now. These are the lines you've crossed, the boundaries you've broken. You recognize, hopefully, that leads us to our need for a Savior. And then 1,500 years after Moses, Jesus, who is the true descendant of Abraham, the seed with a capital S, he also is the recipient of those promises, and he's the fulfillment of those promises. It's through him that all nations will be blessed. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Today, what we're going to see is Paul continuing, pressing the same point, justification through faith in Jesus, and he does it by uh, painting pictures of two different ways of living, what it looks like to live under the law 
or what it looks like to live in Jesus. And he has different metaphors that he uses for that. So hopefully this will provide some clarity for us. Starting in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So two different ways of living, under the law or in Christ. To live under the law, Paul says, this is what it looks like. It looks like condemnation, it looks like constraint, and it looks like bondage. Those three things. Condemnation, the picture there is we're in jail and the law is our jailer or our prison guard. We've used this verse for the past couple of weeks. Cursed or rejected by God is everyone who does not continually do everything written in the law. So the law makes plain the lines that we've crossed, the boundaries that we've broken. And when we cross those lines or break that boundary, break those boundaries, that makes us law breakers. And the penalty for breaking the law is rejection by God, which is death. So we're in the prison of death with the law as our jailer or our prison guard. We stand condemned, and the law is the one who condemns us. And then Paul goes on and he says, also the law, it it constrains. That word for us is negative, constrained. It actually has a positive function. So uh, the, the picture is of a, your Bible may say, my Bible says guardian, yours may say custodian or old translations say tutor. It is an educational word, but it's not instructional. In our educational setting, it would not be the instruction part of a teacher's job, but the, the classroom management part. It's, the, it's the, the vice principal of students, the person who's in charge of, of behavior, the, the person being referred to as a slave who takes a kid to and from school and monitors and is responsible for their behavior. It's the disciplinarian. The law is a disciplinarian. It, it constrains our behavior. The 613 do's and don'ts that say, here are the lines and here are the boundaries. Don't cross them. Here's the way that God wants you to live. Do these things. That's what the, the law functions that way. In our life, it constrains our behavior. We said last week, the law can only deal with our behavior. It deals with our externals, what we do with our hands. It doesn't deal with the root of our problem, which is our hearts. The core problem we have is that we're dead, not that we're bad. And the law can't bring us to life. Only the Holy Spirit can. However, or at the same time, it is, all things being equal, better to follow the law than not. Even if our hearts are still dead, it's better to live in a place where people don't steal. 
even if our hearts are still dead, it's better to live in a place where people don't kill each other. It's better to live in a place where people aren't sleeping with folks they're not married to. So even though the law can't deal with our core problem, which is our heart, even if we're just following the letter of the law, it does constrain our behavior in overall positive ways. We need more than the law. We need something that can address our heart issue. It's Jesus. But the law, again, all things kind of being equal, even the the constraining of our behavior is for our good and for the good of those who we're in community with. The law constrains us. And the law also enslaves us. This one's a little trickier. Paul uses the word guardian, but it's different than the word guardian in chapter 3. This is, the, this is a steward, a, a manager, an overseer, a trustee, someone who's in charge of somebody else's property and possession. So the picture is of a, a child who will inherit, but they're too young. They're a minor. They're not allowed to inherit. The will says that when you're 18 or 21 or whatever it says, and the child's not that old yet. And so what Paul says is if that's you, if you're a child and you know you're going to receive an inheritance, but you haven't yet, you're really in the same boat as a slave because the inheritance is being managed by someone else. You still don't, you don't have access to those resources yet. And what he's, the, the, the analogy there is for us, if we're living under the law, then we can't inherit the promises of God. You can't have both. If we're choosing to live under the law and all that that means, then we can't inherit the promises of God, these things that he wants to give to us. But then Paul takes a turn and he says, our trustee is actually not, it's not someone who's benevolent. It's not someone who's kind. It's not someone who's looking out for our best interest. It's actually the devil and his Minions, it's the devil and his demons, these elemental forces of the world. That is actually who we're enslaved to. The law is holy, righteous, and good. That's what Paul says in Romans. But the devil, as he does, twists something that God has intended for good and he uses it to our detriment. How does that work? So, um, some of you, by nature, you're a rule follower. Outside of your relationship with Jesus, if you remember life before him, you were someone who followed the rules. Maybe people called you a goody two-shoes or something like that. What the, the way the devil will use the law in your life is he'll, he'll, he'll use it to drive you to despair. You know where the lines are. You know where the boundaries are. You're keenly aware of them. And you're also keenly aware when you break them. Or to flip the metaphor, you know when you miss the mark. Or flip the, the understanding of sin, you know when you miss the mark. And so you spend a lot of time wondering, is God upset with me? Is he angry? Is he disappointed? I know I blew it. Let me see what I can do to kind of make up for that. The enemy is using something good the, that God intended for good, the law, which is supposed to point us to Jesus. And for those of us who are rule followers, it tends to point us back to ourselves, to our own behavior And that leads us to despair. Some of you, I'm going to call you independent. And you like to do your own thing. And when somebody says you can't, you say, want to bet. And so the lines for you, are all they're all challenges. Here are the lines and here are the boundaries. And for you, those are just, those are things to to jump over. The enemy uses the law in your life really to provoke 
sin. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. He wouldn't know what coveting is if the law had said, don't covet. And some of you, you know, like, that is your story. That's your story. You're not interested until somebody says no. And then suddenly that thing moves to the top of your list. You want to try it out for yourself. And that's the enemy. He's using the law to provoke, to incite that, we'll just call it what it is, rebellious part of your heart to break the law. That's what he's doing. He's using, again, something that God intended to point you to Jesus. The enemy is using to point you to life apart from him, to a life independent of him. The, the, the lines that are drawn, and you may, you may not agree with this, the lines that God drew, he drew for our good. It's not just that the wages of sin is death in the ultimate sense of separation from God. The wages of sin is death now. Sin brings death to our life. The, the deceitfulness of sin is that death usually doesn't set in immediately. Adam and Eve sin and they don't die literally for hundreds of years. But they've begun to die in that moment. And that's how sin works in our life. Rarely do we reap the full consequences of sin in the moment that we choose it. And so that can lead us to believe it's not really that. It's, it's what the devil said to Eve. You're not going to die. You can eat it. You're certainly not going to die. And if she, that the first bite she took, she didn't die. She did. But she just didn't feel it yet. And that's how we are with, with sin often. Occasionally we experience the full brunt of the consequences immediately. And then we say it's not fair. But in general, it, 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 takes, it takes some time. And for those of you who are prone, again, to that independent streak, that, that can be a... Ultimately, that's... The enemy is using the law to lead you into captivity to sin. You think you're mastering it. It's actually mastering you. So we're enslaved. We're condemned. We're constrained and we're enslaved. That's a bleak picture, but thankfully God remembers his promises and he keeps his promises. So at the set time, when the time was right, when the circumstances on the earth and in hearts were appropriate... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption to sonship at, at just the right time or when the time had fully come. Sometimes we wonder, you've read the Old Testament, and you're going, why did you wait so long? Why did you wait 2,000 years? This is a dumpster fire. Why would you wait? Galatians 4 says he came at, he sent his son at, at the set time, when the circumstances were just right. We don't know what those are. People guess. We have a Roman government that has a large empire at the time. It's a time of relative peace. There's roads, so it's easy to travel. Most people speak Greek, so if you've got a message and you want to get it out, it seems like a great time. It's easy to travel, and everybody speaks the same language. You've got Jews who for hundreds of years have been spread out in this in this empire, so you've got synagogues all over the place. So if it's a message about the God of the Bible and about the Messiah that he wants to send, well, you've got people who, who at least have the book. They have the Old Testament. 
in all of these places. You've got 400 years. They're called the silent years from Malachi to Matthew, where the, where the Jews in general have been getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier for God to do something. So those are, just, those are guesses. What does it mean at the set time when the circumstances are right? But they're, they're possibilities. God sends his son, born of a woman. He's fully God, God's son, fully man. Mary's son, born under the law. That's really important. All of the stipulations, requirements, commands laid on a, a Jewish man were laid on Jesus, and he fulfilled all of them. Why does that matter? Because he redeemed us from the law. He bought us back from condemnation and constraint and slavery. And he did that through his death. Passover lamb in Exodus, the Passover lamb had to be without defect. No, no physical injuries, not maimed in any way. Perfect, physically perfect. When that word is applied to a person, that same word without defect, when it's applied to a person, it means to be innocent or to be blameless. Physically perfect of an animal is to be morally perfect of a person. This animal, this lamb, is sacrificed in the place of the oldest son of every household. You sacrifice a, a lamb so your oldest is not killed. The angel of death passes over your house. Jesus, as the perfect lamb, the lamb of God, he dies in our place. He, he, he dies the death that we all deserve for breaking the law. It's important that he was born under the law. He fulfilled it perfectly, which means he can then fulfill that role as Passover lamb. He doesn't have to die for his own sins because he didn't commit any. He dies for mine and for yours. And he dies again to redeem us from the law. To buy us back from enslavement and constraint and condemnation. In order that we can receive the sonship of God or the adoption to sonship. If you're thinking about this is life under the law, this is life in Christ. What's life in Christ? It's intimacy and inheritance. If you want two words that start with the same letter. Intimacy and inheritance. We're children and we're heirs. Both of those things. We're heirs because we're children. Because we're children, we're heirs. Those things are connected. As children, we're adopted. That was that second song that we sang. God took the initiative, chose us and selected us and grafted us into his family. The Paul talks about baptism. That's, that's an outward sign of that spiritual reality. It's through faith that we become children of God. And everyone who's baptized into Jesus puts on Jesus. The picture there is taking off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. Taking off the old, putting on the new. So here's an, here's an early church practice that we will never, ever ever, ever, ever adopt. They baptize people naked. Never, it's not happening here. So you come, it's dark outside, but you're wearing your clothes. You come up to the edge of the lake. You take off your clothes. You get into the lake. You're dunked either one or three times. Then you come out and they put a new robe on you. It's a great picture. And you'll have to go somewhere else to live it out because it's not, it's not going to be here. And I'm not going to be the one doing it at least. So the, but the idea, we're taking off the old 
and we're putting on the new. Those of us who are in Christ. That, that's that's the, the imagery there. Baptism, there's different, it, it, it has different uh, images. It, it, it looks, it, there's different angles on baptism in the New Testament. This is the Galatians 3 and 4 angle is, this is a symbol of our adoption, of our leaving behind this one life and being grafted into this new. And, and the distinctions that we see here on this earth, they don't matter. Ethnic distinctions don't matter, Jew or Greek. Class distinctions don't matter, slave or free. Gender distinctions don't matter, male and female. You've heard that phrase, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That's what Paul is saying. That Galatians 3.28 is where that phrase comes from. Those things that do distinguish us from one another, we're taking all of those things off when we, when we begin to follow him. And we're putting him on. In Paul's day, to be a man gave you a leg up. To be free gave you a leg up. Spiritually, being a Jew gave you a leg up from the Jewish perspective. And what Paul is saying is, no, none of that. Those distinctions, they are legitimate. Paul is still a Jewish free man after his conversion. But that doesn't in any way enhance his relationship with God. It, it It doesn't mean anything in terms of his standing before the Lord. Those distinctions don't matter. They fall away. We, we're taking all of that off when we step into the baptismal water. So here's what I want to say about baptism. I don't want you to do anything because you feel guilty. But if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, then I want you to be. I don't know how else to say it. If you're an adult, I, want you, I would love you to reach out to Matt or Vanessa and just talk to them. There are reasons why people are not baptized. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, but his reason is because he was killed. And you haven't been. He becomes a Christian on the cross. And when he gets off the cross, he's dead. So there's no window for him. There are some reasons. But not, probably not for us. Not tons. And if there's something that's holding you back, and this not sarcastically, we would love to talk with you about that. Nobody's going to manipulate you. And again, I don't want you to feel pressure. Guilt's a horrible Motivator. I don't want you to do something because you feel guilty. But it is the New Testament expectation. We see it. Jesus, the Great Commission, baptize. You see it in Acts. People are converted and then they're baptized. We see it here. In Galatians, you see it in Romans. It's a powerful symbol and sign of what God is doing in our lives. This change in status that we have. And so I want to encourage you, again, if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, reach out to Matt or Vanessa and let them talk with you about what that, what that would look like. Does baptism save? No way. We're saved through faith. We're not saved through faith and water. Do I have to do it? Like, that's the wrong question. Like, don't ask. How far is too far? Don't ask. It doesn't... That, I, I, don't know if you, I don't know how to answer that. A heart, again, not, I don't want to come down on you. A heart that says, do I have to, that's not the right heart. It's just not. Jesus says to be baptized. He says to baptize people. The pattern of the early church is to baptize people. So like my, my question, if you're saying, do I have to, I would say, well, why wouldn't you? Not in a rude way. 
and then we can talk about that. Talk to Matt and Vanessa, they're nicer than me, and they'll help you walk through all of that. (laughs) Baptism. And then this is the big piece for us. What are we adopted into? We're adopted into intimacy. Abba. You may have heard that word means daddy. Not the most helpful because for most of us, when we hear daddy, we think childish. And Abba is not a childish word. It is a familial word, but it's, and it's a term of intimacy. Adult children, adults would call their father Abba. So it's, again, it's not a word reserved for ch- children. There's some debate about whether Old Testament Jews saw God as their father, but there's no debate that Jesus takes that truth and deepens it tremendously. Abba is Aramaic. That's Jesus' native language, and it means father. That's a direct translation. So the Lord's Prayer, if he spoke it in Aramaic, he's saying, our Abba who is in heaven. And he says, that's how you pray. What do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about him as your Abba? He is your creator. He is your judge. He is your king. We approach him as our father. It's your Abba who is the creator, your Abba who is your judge, your Abba who is your king. It's really important. What do you think about when you think about him? Do you think about him in that familial and intimate way? Someone who's adopted you into his family and treats you as a son or as a daughter and desires for you to relate to him, again, as Abba, as father. That the, the intimacy there for some of us makes us uncomfortable, but that's, that's what it means for us to be his people and for him to be our God. That's what he's been about since Genesis chapter 1 when he created Adam and Eve. That's what he's always been trying to do, forming a people, forming a family for himself. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's where all of this is going. I'll be your, you'll be my people and, and I'll be your God. That, that's, those are the bookends. And everything in the middle is about either, you want to say, recovering this or getting to this. That's what he's always wanted. And as children, we're heirs. The promises to Abraham. Again, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God. Those promises are made to us. We're written into the will. Now, many of the... the bullet points of that, the specifics of those promises, we won't receive until Jesus returns. When is that going to be? When the set time fully comes? I don't know. We look at our world and we're like, here, 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 lots of reasons, lots of places that we see. It would have been great. But when the set time has fully come, God is looking at the landscape of the world in our hearts. He knows When's best? Jesus will return and we will fully inherit at that point. We can taste it now. What does it mean for us to be his people and for him to be our God? It means our sins are forgiven. It means our bodies are healed. It means all of evil is and wickedness is destroyed. It means that anything that ensnares or entangles is done away with and we walk in freedom. It means all the effects of the fall are reversed. Again, read Revelation 21 and 22. That's, that's where we're going. That's what we're going to inherit. At the heart of it is relationship. That's the heart. 
And these other things flow out of that relationship. We're children and we're heirs. How do we move from under the law to in Christ? It's faith. It's trusting in Jesus. Fifteen times in Galatians 3, Paul uses the word faith. Those are just a few that we read today behind me. It's by trusting in him. You already knew the answer to that. Trusting in him moves us from under the law, from condemnation, from constraint, and from enslavement to inheritance and intimacy. To being, not to being a minor child who has an inheritance he or she can't fully realize. Not being a prisoner who's in jail. Not even being a student who's being taught that moves us to being a son or a daughter who also is an heir. It's through trusting in Jesus. And so here's my question for you as we close. Are you right now, not asking if you're a Christian, I'm asking right now, Sunday, October 1st, 1029 a.m., are you aware, living in the reality that you have been adopted into the family of God and that he is your father? Does that truth permeate your heart and your mind, and does it shape the way you live your life? What do you think about when you think about him? Do you think about him as your Abba? And if you do, that's going to affect the way that you relate to him, and how you relate to him affects everything else. What do you think about when you think about him? Right now, this morning, you know in your brain he is your father. Are you living out of that reality? Again, this is all theology, so it can be hard to know. What am I, where's the handhold? Like, where am I grabbing onto? I'm going to give you one thing to meditate on this week and one prayer to pray. And so if, you, if it helps you to take pictures of these things so you have them, you can. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to say this. It's, a, it's just a passage from Romans 8 that I've, we've personalized it. And I want, I don't know how often you spend time with the Lord in a week, but every time you do this week, I want to encourage you to say this out loud. Out loud. Don't just think it. Say it. And then ready? Here's the great part. I want you to put your hand on your heart when you do it. That sounds corny, but there's neuroscience behind that. So there is. So we're going to read this together prayerfully with our hands on our heart. And then there's a prayer that we're going to pray, but this is my takeaway for you. I want you to grab onto this. And again, if it's three times or five times or seven times this week that you spend time with the Lord, I want you to, be, I want you to do this out loud. So let's start with those first words. The spirit I have received does not make me a slave so that I live in fear again. Rather, the spirit I received brought about my adoption to sonship. And by the Spirit, I cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with my spirit that I am God's child. Now, if I am a child, then I'm an heir, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. If indeed I share in his sufferings in order that I may also share in his glory. So this is true of me, and this is true of you. This is what trusting in Jesus brings about this reality for us. One of the things that makes it difficult for us to grab onto this is fear. 
And so we're going to pray this prayer in response to that fear that we sometimes feel. And I'd encourage you this week, like, let this become a prayer for you. Let's start with, Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen me with power through your spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that being rooted and established in love, I may have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for me. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that I may be filled to the measure of all of your fullness. First John says perfect love is what casts out fear. And again, fear is one of the things that causes us to step back from God, to not move towards him but away. And so we want that fear that we have to be replaced by the love that he has. So I'm going to say a prayer. Bo will lead us in some time of ministry. If you're helping with ministry, if you come forward, you may have come in with a need. And we would love to pray with you about that need. If this, if this truth, God as Abba, if that's something that right now, October 1st, you're wrestling to experience, we would love to pray with you about that. There's nothing anyone's going to say to convince you. It's revelation in the Holy Spirit. That's his job is to lead us into the truth. You don't need to feel less than if that's not a current reality or experience for you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to ask him and trust him to lead you into that in the ways that he sees fit. I was also thinking just this whole talk of adoption. uh, I was wondering and thinking there may be a handful of you who are considering that. And we would love to pray with you if you're thinking of expanding your family through adoption. We would love to pray that God would uh, give you favor in in that decision. So I'm going to say a prayer and then y'all respond. As you feel that, Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come now, you testifying with us that we're sons and daughters with God, you testifying with our spirits. And we pray that through you, my prayer is everybody in this room, kids, students, and adults, from our hearts, we would address the Father as Abba. Would you help us to do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 